0: Welcome to the Weird Christmas Podcast. I'm Craig Kringle. I get grumpy about Santa. Not about the guy himself. Not like because he only left me coal or he never gave me the bike I wanted. No, my parents actually loved me. I get grumpy when people talk about Santa as if they have a clue. There's so much nonsense out there about his history, and a bunch of it is sanctimonious, self-righteous, self-serving, pettifogging Got that one from Shit Creek, but it works. There are two things people say about Santa that bug me. They both show up when someone wants to remind us of the reason for the season, or to turn Christmas into some kind of patriotic American pride of conquering culture or something or other. The first one is so widespread that everyone takes it for granted with this weird, sober, dutiful nodding along. It's the notion that Santa came directly from St. Nicholas, or that he's just a secularized version of the saint. He's not. Let me just be clear about that. Santa is not just a modern version of St. Nicholas. This way of retelling Santa's origin story makes it seem like, first, there was this guy named St. Nicholas, who for some reason was important to Christmas, weren't around giving gifts, but over time, he just loved children so much that we got rid of the religious trappings so that he could be a symbol of giving for all people. How nice. How false. St. Nick was a late addition to Christmas traditions, and there were old man gift givers long before he got shoehorned into the mix. In fact, if anything, our beardy, fat, rumpled old Santa is probably getting more back to the original, and the razor-thin, uptight Saint Nick might be best described as a weird tangent in Santa's evolution. Okay, maybe I'm overstating things a little bit, but stick with me and I hope you'll see what I mean. The other thing I hear a lot is people saying that Americans created Santa Claus. This is kind of like the second prize story. In this one, if people don't want to get all holy on you and say that their Christian idea is oldest and best, Americans will say, even sometimes, as if it's like a little bit of a shame, oh yeah, we had this poem called A Night Before Christmas that started all the modern legends, and then Coke got involved, and our version now dominates the world. Also false. False, 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 false. Well, the Coke part might be right. But the idea that it was Americans, especially Clement Clark Moore, or whoever wrote the poem, came up with all that stuff about the chimney and the reindeer and all the jolly happiness? Nope. We may have popularized the idea, but it wasn't ours. It's Dutch and German by way of New York and Pennsylvania immigrants, and it only got popular by twists and turns of chance. So maybe you're thinking I'm just splitting hairs and these old stories are right in spirit, if not all the facts, but no, Santa didn't come from St. Nick. All the Nicholas legends were grafted on to a gift-giver tradition that was there long before the Catholics tried to Christianize winter celebrations. And even when the Christian version was predominant, most of St. Nick's existence saw Christians fighting over him, saying he was too pagan or too Catholic or too nice, and they kept trying to change him or get rid of him. It really is a tangent. And the whole American Santa thing is just misunderstood. Because even in the history books, there's a story about how Santa got popularized that puts a ton of weight on Clement Clark Moore and Washington Irving and the illustrator Thomas Nast that in the end they may not really deserve. At least not to the extent we've given them. No, real history, my friends, is like dunking a mitten in half-frozen water and smacking yourself in the face. It leaves little flecks of ice and frigid soul-sucking water all over you. It helps you get rid of comfy, reassuring tales that wrap everything up in a neat little bow that you can set on a shelf and leave there, never to bother you again. So, I got me a historian to set the record straight about Santa. And not just any old historian, but the guy who wrote what I think is the best book on the history of Santa. It actually just came out this year, but Tom German's Santa Claus Worldwide, A History of St. Nicholas and Other Holiday Gift Bringers. It's already probably my favorite book about Santa. This thing is legit. As the kids say, a true academic, document-heavy, all-evidence-traced collection of everything we'll likely ever be able to know about Santa's history. And it does what all the best history books do. It screws up everything you thought you had nailed down and figured out and makes you realize that your simple little story is pathetically wrong. And don't get me wrong, this isn't one of those, like, in-your-face, you've-been-lied-to kinds of conspiracy books. There are some of those out there about Santa, and they're great fun, but usually, you know, insane. German's written the only kind of nonfiction book I can really read anymore, which is one filled with footnotes and careful as can be about what we can say and what we can't. When I try to pick up some of those bestsellers that are like, you know, scientists telling anecdotes or specialists summarizing some new theory or history books that don't bother to tell you what documents are actually supporting what they're saying, I just can't. I mean, I assume they're making stuff up or too lazy to bother tracking down sources, so why should I think they could inform me? Now, I like history that feels like we're really working, and that's what this book does. So fair warning before you go plunk down the price that the publishers ask for academic books. This isn't a coffee table Santa book, but it is just about everything I've been hoping someone would do for Santa and Christmas. I want to wallow in the evidence carefully pick steps through the documents, and emerge at the end with armor to destroy all the other idiots peddling me lies. Am I too deep into this Christmas stuff? I'm probably a little too deep. Oh well. So Tom and I had a long conversation, and I've trimmed it down quite a bit, but I think this is still the longest episode I've ever done. If all goes as planned, then you're listening to this one on Thanksgiving figured that'd be a good time for something a little extra, since you may have less to do with isolation and not wanting to accidentally kill your grandparents because you crave turkey. But I had a blast talking to him, and I really did come out at the end feeling like I knew much better what we can and can't say about Santa. And what we cannot say about him is usually what everyone does say. So consider this a little early Christmas present of knowledge. (music)
1: Jolly old St. Nicholas, lean your ear this way. Don't you tell a single soul what I'm going to say. Christmas time is coming soon. Now, you
0: dear old man, whisper what you've got for me. Tell me if you can
1: how I'd like to be with
0: you. So, maybe we could just start with the, the simple question of how did you get into this? You were a lawyer. I mean, the back of the book says retired lawyer. And that's sort of all the biographical information it gives. But then you talk about you had a collection.
1: Yeah, I went to law school. I was actually a journalist for a few years before going to law school. I went to law school, went to work for a big uh, firm in Southern California, and spent the next 35 years basically taking advantage of employees on behalf of their employer but we, <laughs> we,
0: it's good that you're honest about it <laughs> we
1: don't like to think of it that way yeah it's uh always um interesting to see whether your job as a lawyer uh runs into your ethical views but in my in my case, generally did not have a problem. In any event, um, I was uh, living in Southern California, practicing law, and uh, I found one day as we were out uh, shopping at a Christmas fair, this little Santa Claus figurine uh, that I liked. And so I bought him. And he was $15 um, and took him home and put him on the, the, the mantle for Uh, Christmas and next year I bought another Santa or maybe two and every year for 35 years I would sort of increase the number I bought until I had into the hundreds and then into the thousands of these Santa Claus figurines and my what I liked about them was how different they all were yeah Uh, you think of Santa Claus as being sort of a fixed object but in fact these figurines are you know tall short fat skinny red blue green short beard long beard no beard everything that you can imagine but they were all still recognizable as santa claus mm-hmm. and uh so i would try and uh, increase my collection by buying anything that was different than what I had, because that was my love was 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 the diversity yeah about ten years ago, I made what i'll say was a mistake, although it is it, really uh, a great thing. Um, I joined the uh, golden glow of Christmas path i don't know if you're aware of it, but it is a organization of Christmas. Collectors uh, started with uh, collectors of old uh, Christmas light bulbs back in 1981, oh, and wow. then expanded. and They have a convention every year. Um, I think they must have about 3,000 members, and the convention gets you know between six and eight hundred attendees every summer usually have it in july um it's a fascinating uh crowd very diverse in terms of of the types of people who come and it is mostly about buying and selling and trading uh christmas collectibles Mm -hmm. and it the emphasis is on antique it used to be more than 50 years old they changed that to make it more than 40 years old but but The idea is that these were antique collectors. And once I got into that um, and started to look at antique Santa figurines that were for sale in antique stores and like, um, I realized I did not know very much about them. And I couldn't tell whether a little six inch uh, celluloid Santa should be worth 10 bucks or 90 bucks and mm-hmm. um obviously what it's marked is not always a very good indication of what it is really worth um and so I started buying books um that purportedly um were guides to collecting christmas memorabilia there are dozens of books out there and what i concluded is that most of them were not very helpful and uh, we're wrong, and so I decided that the world needed a collector's guide that was more explanatory, that used words, <laughs> but there just wasn't a lot out there. So I decided I was going to write a book on uh collecting Santa figurines, and I spent about probably a couple of years working on that. This was when I was actually employed, so. Mm-hmm. I could not spend full time on it, but I spent a good deal of time on it. And uh, by the time we got to 2015, I decided I was going to retire uh, at the end of the year. And that allowed me, obviously, a lot more time to work on this. Um, So as I began writing, I said the first chapter has got to be a history of Santa Claus. And so I started writing about Santa Claus and there were, um, probably a dozen pretty good books, um, on the history of Santa. Uh Um, and by the time I had gotten to sort of chapter two, I had, I think it was like 250 pages on the history of Santa. <laughs> and I had an editor that I had hired to help me out. And she said, and I, I had to agree that it really didn't work to have a 250 uh, page introduction chapter on Santa. And that what I should do is bifurcate this process, write a book on Santa Claus, and then write a separate book on collecting figurines and it made a lot of sense uh, to me it would be easier to find a publisher for a book on the history of Santa than collecting figurines which is a fairly limited market so mm-hmm. we took the first chapter and turned it into a book which took me probably another couple of years um, and I found a, a publisher uh, in North Carolina that uh, uh, it's called McFarland and Company. They're uh, academic publishers, the way they describe themselves. Mm-hmm. And they agreed uh, sort of tentatively to publish it. Um, and as I was writing sort of what I thought would be the end of it, an uh, English professor from uh, New Zealand who had been a Shakespeare expert and and as i understand it's actually widely respected wrote a small book on who wrote the night before christmas mm-hmm. and i had covered that in very general terms by saying the night before christmas was written by clement seymour in 1822 to read to his children and one of them or one of their friends took it and gave it to the editor of the uh, Troy Sentinel Troy New York Sentinel in uh, uh 1823 it got published anonymously and because it was anonymous anybody could uh, and it wasn't copyrighted anybody uh, could uh, uh publish it and so small town papers began to publish it um About once a year, um, some paper would publish it. And it was really the mid to late 1800s before it became really well known. People tend to think it was an immediate hit, but it wasn't. Right. Um, It took a while. Um, In any event, uh, in the year 2000 or 2001, there's a Vassar uh, College English professor who wrote a book. Um, called author unknown, and this guy fancied himself to be the authorship detective, and <laughs> had been involved in some very high-profile uh, cases. Though in retrospect, he got them wrong in several uh, uh, significant uh, cases, including attributing, you know, a poem to Shakespeare that everybody decided was was not the product of uh, Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And I had just said, there's enough negative press on this book from 2001 uh, that I I only needed to say, there's a, a claim made by the descendants of Henry Livingston Jr. that he actually wrote it in 1808, but that cannot be true for these four reasons and it was almost like a footnote and the book that came out in 2019 I guess did a lot more in terms of actually conducting what you might call a statistical analysis or a language analysis to say Mm -hmm. no this book really you know looks more like the writing of Henry Livingston than the writing of Clement Moore. Uh, And I got really into that uh, because, you know, with my background as a lawyer, disputes are fun. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a disagreement here. I got to figure out who's right. And so I I spent uh, a long time learning about um, authorship analysis and the different forms and the subjective analyses and statistical analyses. And this was great. I, I loved this piece but uh it took up about two hundred and fifty pages in the middle of the history.
0: <laughs> Your other two hundred and fifty yes. pages. Right.
1: And so I sent it, you know, to the uh, uh, publisher and they called me back and they said, Well, you know, it's an interesting topic, but first of all, we published the book that you're trashing. <laughs> <laughs> so we gotta be a little careful there. But more importantly, you know, this is really two books. And it took about 10 seconds for me to recognize they were absolutely right. It was two books. We made the decision. I would take everything about um, who wrote the night before Christmas, except for a footnote uh, out of this book. And and it would just tell the story because at the end of the day, whose name appears on that poem doesn't matter because they never did anything else. Whether it's Henry Livingston Jr. or Clement C. Moore, uh, somebody wrote the poem The poem got given to the uh, Troy Sentinel. It published it. And then from that point on, newspapers picked it up from each other. And no one ever heard from the uh, purported authors again. So um, it doesn't affect the history. So what I decided I would do was write the history of Santa. And then when that got published, I would write who wrote the night before christmas and that's what i'm actually working on right now when i get time um i've got all the information but it's just having pulled it out of the book um sort of piece by piece I need to reassemble it in a more readable fashion so
0: you still have quite a lot of that issue in this one
1: i have some but i um i reduced it substantially gotcha there is uh, nothing in there about the uh, statistical and machine learning tests that the experts in the field have used to test authorship. This stuff gets gotcha. really gotcha. arcane. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, that is all gone.
0: Well, let's talk about then what it is you're saying about Santa. And I want to say, first of all, that I think this book is great. I mean, I have read... Every Christmas book that I know of, and I haven't read anything that I think is quite as thorough and um, complete in terms of just trying to make sure that you've got as many references of different characters from different regions and and different ways that they could connect. So, you know, just take a moment of my praise. (laughs) Thank you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, that was my goal was to write something that had footnotes, yeah
0: <laughs> you know uh,
1: and and that was really documented back to original sources whenever possible because so much of what is out there tells these stories without really telling you where they got the information and mm-hmm. it's useless if you don't have the original source you know you need yeah. to this is i guess my my uh lawyer has speaking out here but if you don't have the evidence that you can show the judge it doesn't uh, do any good to make the argument you have to start with, with with the original evidence and so that was what I really tried to accomplish was to go back as far as um, I could into original evidence um, and in some cases in books written in the um, 19th century that were sort of more open-minded in terms of how they approached the subject. They weren't bound by what other people had said. And that becomes a real problem when you're trying to do a history. One of the things that I, I discovered that I spent probably more more space on than the typical Christmas uh, uh, lover would want, but was important to get right, I thought, was a claim made by... Um, a Berkeley history professor, Charles W. Jones, in 1953, as published in 1954 in the uh, New York Historical Society Quarterly. Um, and he said, or his theory was that author Washington Irving, quote, made Christmas. He never uses the word invented or created. He uses the word made or without Irving there would be no Santa Claus uh, Mm -hmm. words like that but he basically attributes the creation of Santa to Irving in his book a history of New York which not a lot of people these days I suspect have have read but which is actually (laughs) a hilarious book I mean Irving was a, a great writer and this this is what what uh Christopher Guest might do these days <laughs> um, is a mockumentary about the history yeah. of new york beginning with the um dutch in 1624 and ending when the english took over in what was it 1684 i think uh and it just lampoons the uh historical people that were running the dutch colony at that time and it's hilarious. Um, But one of the things that he does is he has this running joke about the Dutch love for St. Nicholas. Mm -hmm. Um, And you can't really tell whether Irving thought the Dutch really did love St. Nicholas, because if you go back post-Reformation, the Dutch broke from the Catholic Church, they formed the Dutch Reformed Church, and they would not permit, in fact, they outlawed celebration of St. Nicholas Day. And so the Dutch people said, okay, we can't celebrate St. Nicholas Day. That's fine. We'll celebrate Sinterklaas Day. (laughs) It's the day before. And Sinterklaas is is not St. Nicholas. Sinterklaas lives in Spain. He comes up once a year and uh, rides a white horse on a steamboat Gets off in in, uh, the middle of the city and um, over the next few days distributes uh, gifts and candy to good boys and girls. And that's how they avoided the sanction of uh, the government against celebrating the feast day of a Catholic saint because Catholics were uh, persona non grata. Um, And... Irving for all I know thought it was funny to ascribe to the Dutch this love for St. Nicholas when in fact he knew that they wouldn't allow St. Nicholas but mm-hmm. putting that aside it was humorous device where the constant repetition of these Dutch folks uh using St. Nicholas's name in the same way as you know one might say Merlin's beard you know they would they would say saint nicholas and uh, that was what the book had originally in 1809 when it was published in 1812 he revised it and he added a little bit more he added two or three paragraphs that talked more about the celebration of saint nicholas day and he added more references to saint nicholas himself in any event professor jones of berkeley Uh, decided that all of these references in what turned out to be the 1812 version of uh, History of New York meant that Irving had really sort of invented Santa Claus. And and Jones doesn't seem to understand that there's a big difference between uh, St. Nicholas and Santa Claus. St. Nicholas had a feast day Mm -hmm. in December 6th where he would arrive. Santa Claus came on Christmas Eve. There were substantial differences that he didn't understand.
0: Yeah. And I just to say, there's one section in the book where you talk about the difference between the celebration of St. Nicholas and the celebrations of Christmas, and then how they got mixed up a little bit because of calendar issues and because of traditions and the way that uh, Protestants and Catholics moved around and just how how really naughty that relationship is. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And that's that's just a side yeah. note. Naughty <laughs> K-N-O-T-T-Y.
1: Exactly. exactly. N-A-U-G-H-T-Y. Yeah, yeah.
0: I guess it depends on who's uh <laughs> how how people feel about yes, this. And the purity of their traditions, yeah.
1: But um, I started researching this and I realized that there were I think 28 books and scholarly articles that cited Jones and said uh, Washington Irving made or created Santa Claus, and then they would cite Jones' work. And none of them ever actually went back and read the book, as I did, Um, and it became apparent that Jones was working off the 1812 edition, not the first edition in 1809. And Jones' theory is that the book popularized the St. Nicholas because all these poems appeared shortly after it was published. But when you put the uh, chronology in the correct order, the poems were published in 1810. The 1809 book had very little in it, and then it's the 1812 book, that had most of the stuff about St. Nicholas. So he was working with the wrong edition of the book. And 70 years, nobody has pointed that out, <laughs> which is uh, to me fairly remarkable, uh, especially since the article that Jones published in, in uh, 1954 took to task a, a historian from the 1850s who had written about the history of New York and who cited Irving's satire as if it were real history. And Jones, you know, takes great pleasure in in, in uh, criticizing this woman for having, you know, not realized that the work was a piece of fiction um, and for not having read the original sources so it's really ironic that all of these historians since jones have done exactly the same thing they cite the famous author the famous professor's works and they just assume that he has clothes on when in fact turns out the (laughs) emperor had no clothes or the (laughs) uh, the berkeley professor had no clothes that is you know i i think the best single example of how the history of Santa Claus has been distorted and told incorrectly. And so my goal was to correct as much of that as I could.
0: And it's also true that it's a nice compact easy story to tell too, which as in most things is not how the reality actually works. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> but but it's convenient and so it's a nice way to to talk about how the American Santa Claus came about. Yeah.
1: My theory, which I articulate, is that the American Santa Claus really comes from a book that was published in 1821 called The Children's Friend. Mm -hmm. And The Children's Friend there was for many years, only one copy that existed. There's a second copy that Yale has. And i talked to the librarians in Yale and said, you know, where did that come from? And was told that it was actually donated fairly recently in the last Hmm. 10 years. So somebody found it somewhere. Uh, but, But the important copy of The Children's Friend was held and still is held by the American Antiquarian uh, Society in Massachusetts. And the wonderful story is that the copy they had was given to a young man, Stephen Salisbury III, when he was six years old in 1841. Well, his father became president of the American antiquarian society and then after his father died he became president and when he died in 1905 he donated his life's collection of documents to the society and in that uh, huge uh, pile of boxes with with everything he had ever owned they found this pamphlet and it was until very recently the only copy that existed. Hmm. Um and so he did exactly what the uh AAS uh would have urged him to do, which is to preserve the documents that tell America's history. So, um you know, I think that's a wonderful story of how a six year old boy basically uh, found and saved the most important Christmas document in American history (laughs) because it really does tell the story of Santa Claus as we have all learned it and the illustrations show Santa Claus as we picture him it's the first time that anybody well it's the first depiction of, of of Santa Claus in the United States is also the first time any of the Christmas gift givers were depicted with a uh, reindeer. So he pulled, the, the publisher of this uh, book and the illustrator pulled all this stuff together from, in my judgment, German history, that these were essentially German characters and... When the massive German migration to the U.S. occurred in the early 1800s, the German people and the German children just brought this folklore with them. And it came out in different ways. But, but one of the ways it came out was William Gilley and, and Arthur Stansbury writing and, and illustrating The Children's Friend. A children's friend is particularly important because while the book disappeared for 100 years Gilly's office was literally uh, yards away from Clement Moore's winter home and the uh, seminary he taught at and so it okay. seems inevitable that Moore uh, picked up a copy of the book um the book was sort of mean-spirited that not the story of of Santa Claus but the uh, way he treated the, the children who ended up getting switches in their stockings instead of toys. <laughs> um, and the, the theory, which I subscribe to is that more uh, bought a copy of this probably to give to his kids and read it and said, I don't like it. <laughs> I can do better. And the next year wrote the most famous um, Christmas story in America. And and really, I think along with you know know, a Christmas Carol and and the the Bible, probably one of three the three most important Christmas stories in the world.
0: Yeah. So I guess and just to sort of clarify for people what that means, then is that the traditional notion, like you said, is that our Santa Claus is more of a kind of version of the Dutch figure in one way or another. Um, But that what probably happened is it's more through the more German stories that we probably get a little bit more of our character of Santa Claus. And you, there's a lot more to it. Like, like you talk about how Belsnickel in Pennsylvania really gets in there as well.
1: Yeah. And Belsnickel was a German character who the German immigrants brought to Pennsylvania and he became the gift giver, but his name got changed from, at least for most people, got changed from Belschnickel to Chris Kringle um, because that was the way they were pronouncing Kris Kindle, the Christ child, mm-hmm. who was the German gift giver that was accepted by the Catholics and the Protestants as well. So,
0: And just for those who may not know it, um, if you've ever seen an image of Uh, Like a young girl, um, or even sometimes a young woman, somewhat sometimes dressed like an angel, but usually all white. Uh, She's often the the actual gift giving figure in a lot of German traditions as well. Um, Yeah, a a young woman does not seem like baby Christ, baby Jesus. But yeah, that's not that's that's a further wrinkle than the, the whole (laughs) the <laughs> way that all these legends got changed over time.
1: That's right. And somebody decided that their story would be, well, she's not really the Christ child, but she is the representative of the Christ child here on earth for purposes of Christmas gifts. Right. Um, if if people have seen pictures of St. Lucia, who's the Swedish um, Christmas time hmm. gift giver, that is virtually identical to the depictions of um, the Chris Kindle from mm-hmm. Germany in the seventeen and eighteen hundreds with the yep. uh, a, a crown of of uh, candles and a long white dress, and that's where that figure came from, yeah. but they took the name and plastered it on this sort of rough bearded fur coated figure in in uh, Pennsylvania called. Belsnickel, and that became Chris Kringle, who in the eighteen forties was really better known than either Santa Claus or Saint Nicholas as a Christmas gift giver. He had the first book, he had the first uh Department store. He had everything, but eventually Santa Claus sort of edged him out.
0: Forgotten about that, the the first department store guy. Yeah, yeah. but um, the the one thing I was gonna say too is Belsnickel. Some of you may be thinking, "Oh, I remember that name from somewhere." And if you've seen The Office, that's the guy that um, Dwight says, and he's a real figure. Some people think they just made up some weird, you know, folk thing for Dwight's family, but no, Belsnickel's a real a real thing. Yeah. Exactly.
1: And, and that custom of the uh, men dressing up like Dwight dressed up uh, is a real custom that began in Germany and then was brought over uh, by the Germans to Pennsylvania. And, and in fact, one of the things I figured out as I was going through the historical questions is that knowing that the gift givers were frequently represented by real people – fathers uncles you know older brothers whatever who dressed up in a certain way it uh, gives you a really good understanding as to what those figures probably looked like mm-hmm. you know you can you can uh, find um online pretty easily pictures of these uh germans uh with long dark fake beards long dark coats uh their face will be rubbed with charcoal to make them all, um, dark. And those will be the, what I'm going to call the dark gift givers, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to the, uh, Christ child, um, being more of the light gift givers, right. but it's, there were no, no, uh, um, six month old kids who wanted to go out, uh, uh <laughs> gift giving. So they gave that job to a older female.
0: So this is where it gets even more interesting to me, because what you're also doing in the book is talking not just about where specifically the American Santa came from, but really how complicated any of these gift giving figure traditions really are. Because I think there's also we were just talking about, you know, easy versions of history. There's also the idea that St. Nicholas was originally the gift giver and that over time, Santa Claus just became maybe a more secularized version of that um and that that now we just have santa claus but really the real tradition is saint nicholas but what you do really well in the book is talk about the whole complicated line of these gift givers and gift givers traditions um, in all different parts of europe and how even there's the part that i think americans are getting to know a little bit more now of with krampus um, and uh, a little bit of connect ruprecht you'll see him every now and then but of the the, you call them the evil companions,
1: evil helpers is the, helpers. There yeah. you
0: go. Yep. Yep. The evil helpers who were often companions to these figures too. And that again, when you're trying to figure out where all these traditions come from, there's no necessarily single line of descent. So that easy story of Santa Claus being just a modern version of St. Nicholas is not quite right. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's,
1: it's, much, it's uh... It's it's not right. It's yeah. uh, um, a much more complicated story because uh, St. Nicholas, while he supposedly lived in the third and, and, and fourth centuries, uh, was never heard of. Virtually nothing with the, his name on it until the eighth century, I believe. So, uh, uh, and that was the point at which some monk wrote a, a uh, biography of Saint Nicholas of Myra. But there's no way that some monk in you know the year 800 could have written an accurate biography of Saint Nicholas with no documents. <laughs> it's right. just uh, right. It, it could not have occurred. Um, and
0: even the stories that are written about him are. strange, miraculous tales.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, he throws the bag of gold and it lands in the stocking that had been hung out to dry the night before. It's not really believable, but it was a story that people liked. And uh, that's how St. Nicholas came to be. But St. Nicholas became known as a saint without really very much background by about I'm thinking it's a thousand AD so it's the 11th uh, century and at that point in time the cities of Bari Italy and Venice Italy both decided that they were going to go reclaim the relics of Saint Nicholas which in Catholic uh, terms means his bones Mm -hmm. from the church in Turkey and that area of Turkey had been uh, under Christian control for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it had come under Muslim control, and they didn't like the idea that this beloved saint would be um, in an area where the Muslims had control. So they went and theoretically stole the bones and took them back to uh, Mm -hmm. Uh, Italy, where you can still go see them.
0: (laughs) And that's got one of my favorite anecdotes about, in the book, is the finger bone, if I'm remembering correctly, the finger bone that gives off a magic liquid Yes, (laughs) some kind. There
1: there is, that's right. And, um, you know, these um, stories of the relics are popular all over Europe. I went to, Mm -hmm. uh, a few years ago, to um, Bruges to a christmas festival there and the catholic church there had um a little vial that they brought out i think once a week for one hour and we just got very lucky and were there when they brought it out that they said was the blood of christ oh. you know? so it's very common during this period for devout catholics to seek and and, and find in quotation marks uh relics of the saints and of christ but uh i'm 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 getting off off the point here it's it's, yeah sorry i'm taking you in different directions (laughs) (laughs) no it's okay the the point is that is that saint nicholas really had no role in christmas until after he had become famous through you know folklore and folk tales and he saved a ship full of sailors from drowning he saved these three virgins from being sent off to a life of sin and so on there were three boys that were supposedly butchered into pieces and put into crockery to pickle and and saint nicholas uh found them and and was able to not put them back together and bring them back to life and um my favorite part is is that after he did this saint nicholas decided that the butcher who had cut these boys up as his punishment, had to spend the rest of his life as St. Nicholas's helper, where his job would be punishing bad boys. (laughs) 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 I uh, I, I nominated that for worst sentencing decision by a saint, (laughs) uh, because (laughs) it doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you look at the celebration of the winter solstice which is where this all begins long before christ was born the winter solstice was a time of near universal celebration and for roughly a month in 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 the middle of winter there would be these lengthy celebrations because they had finished the harvest everything was brought in and by the way that you then had plenty of food to have a feast Uh, You had the beer and the wine would be made by the end of harvest. Um, They would slaughter the cattle and the lamb and the uh, oxen and so on that they could not uh, afford to keep over the winter. Um, They would slaughter them in the late fall, most of the meat would then be frozen and could be eaten over a longer period of time. But the only time it got the real fresh meat was the winter solstice. And mm-hmm. that combined with the fact it was the shortest day of the year that it appeared that the sun was going away, it would get shorter and shorter, and everything on Earth seemed like it was dying. Mm-hmm. And it was a just frightening uh, period for early man. It would be dark for maybe 18 and 20 hours a day. Um. It it, it was sort of like the year 2020 happening uh, uh, thousands of years ago. You know, all of the uh, bad stuff you could think of happening at once. But they looked on the bright side and they held a festival that appealed to the sun god to return... They had all of the beer and the wine that they had made. They had all of the food. They had the fresh meat that they had, and so it turned into a three to four week uh, festival. And it it was in Rome that is probably best documented that they had three different ceremonies. They had Saturnalia, which was a harvest festival in honor of Saturn, the god of uh, the harvest. Uh, the birth of the sun god which was on december 25th which was the date of the winter solstice in the time of christ and Mm -hmm. then they had calends which was the new year and if you think about it that really corresponds to what we have we have thanksgiving We have Christmas, which is the birth of Christ. We have New Year's, and it all together is one long season. But only one day of it is actually the birth of uh, Christ or the celebration of the birth of Christ. And that was originally the celebration of the birth of the sun god until the Roman emperor uh, converted to Christianity and said, no, it's not going to be the sun god anymore. It's going to be Christ Mm -hmm. that is born on December 25th so that's how the the celebration of christ's birth was essentially taken and put into this roman festival but the festival otherwise was unchanged and the logic of it is pretty clear that if 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 the emperor wanted all of his his uh, subjects to Convert to Christianity. He wasn't going to make very much progress if he said. And by the way, once you're a Christian, all this fun stuff, all the drinking, all of the carousing <laughs> uh, at the time of the solstice goes away. Right. You know, they said, no, that all stays. We're just changing the sun to Christ, and everything else will stay the same. It was a lot easier sell than um, getting rid of of the pagan traditions, and that's why the pagan traditions and the Christian tr- Traditions got combined. Um, And then it remained sort of from the fourth century up through sort of the high Middle Ages. There was not a lot of change. And it was in the high Middle Ages that the Catholic missionaries began to work their way north into Northern Europe and and, and, uh, Scandinavia. And the best explanation for saint nicholas is that they were met with pagan people who had a winter solstice celebration called yule and in order to make that into a christian celebration they had to give it a christian focus and they looked at the calendar and and lo and behold they were fairly close to december 6th the uh, feast of uh, saint nicholas and the the best explanation uh, none of this is documented so you know can't be proved in a in a definitive sense but the right. best explanation for where saint nicholas the gift giver comes from is that they took odin the chief pagan germanic god who had a long white beard and long hair and robes very similar to uh, the way St. Nicholas ultimately was depicted, and they put the bishop's clothes on Odin, and voila, that is St. Nicholas. You take the bishop's miter, which is the tall hat they wear, the crozier that's um, staff of a bishop the uh, rad vestments you put those all on the figure of odin and you have saint nicholas yeah and that was well and good until martin luther screwed everything up <laughs> <laughs> oh, no offense intended uh, <laughs> uh to anyone it's simply a joke but 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 martin luther in 1517 comes and theoretically nails his 95 theses to the church door um that in all likelihood never happened but he did articulate 95 complaints about the catholic church that caught on and led to the reformation and led to groups of europeans converting to uh, one of several different religions that were within the umbrella of protestantism Mm -hmm. Uh, some were more conservative than others. Lutheranism celebrated Christmas, uh, but supposedly um, looked down upon some of the more um, exotic uh, forms of celebration.
0: Do you think that some of that had to do with a suspicion that those celebrations did have some pagan connections? Oh yeah. And it wasn't,
1: it wasn't, it wasn't even a suspicion. It was, there were uh, writers in the, um, 17th and 18th century that were quite explicit that christmas was not in the bible this date was just pulled out of the air by these catholics you know which the worst thing you could call anyone at that point in time was a papist that in fact the the catholics had adopted all of these uh, pagan celebrations and all of that was inconsistent with with uh, the word of god as set forth in the bible and they also argued or the the protestant uh, religions also believed that there should be a more direct relationship between man and god without Mm -hmm. the intermediation of popes and saints and cardinals and all that kind of stuff so they thought you should sit down with the Bible, you should read it, and you should act upon it, and if it wasn't in the Bible, it wasn't proper, and Christmas right. is not in the Bible. And so, when you hear people say, today, you know, keep Christ in Christmas, it's a little bit ironic, because for a number of years, many of the Christian religions took just, just the opposite view. They wanted... Mm-hmm. uh uh, no celebration of Christmas at all. They thought it was yeah. not a Christian uh, event. So um, ultimately, you know, the, the people liked the holiday, and, and that is is most likely why these religions softened up over the years. But it's absolutely true that the, I'm going to call them the most conservative uh, religions within the Protestant uh, umbrella opposed the celebration of, of Christmas. Yeah. Um, and when that happened, if you sort of take yourself back to, let's say, 1600, and you've lived your life with a celebration of Christmas that involved the legend of St. Nicholas, uh, all of a sudden, you couldn't use St. Nicholas anymore because he mm-hmm. was a Catholic saint, mm-hmm. and anything Catholic was bad. So they had to come up with some other form of gift giver and there were if you go back and you look at the names in in use in germany in 1500, 1600, 1700s for christmas gift givers there's more than two dozen different names um, they're mostly variations on um, nick or Kloss, but there are a number of different names, but they um, all sort of look the same. I mean, the the common element in these post-Reformation gift givers that took the place of St. Nicholas was that they would have long fur coats, fur hats, long dark beards, dark charcoal on the face, and whether they were called... Neck or whether they were called Klaus, or whether they were called uh, Pelsnickel, or Ashenkloss, they all pretty much look the same. And one of the points there is if you're really really trying to figure out what happened, the one best source are the illustrations uh, from the time period, because that shows you what people actually thought these people looked like. Mm -hmm. And so you can go back and you can find, and I've included in the book, most of the decent pictures of illustrations from from this time period that show these uh, fake nicholases, or faux Mm -hmm. nicholases is the term I use, giving uh, uh, gifts and what they would knock on the door, kids would open the door, they would gruffly say, uh, sing a song or or, or or say a prayer for me. And the, the good kids would do that. And then they would take a handful of treats, nuts, sweets, whatever. They would toss it on the floor. Um, they did not have good public health people apparently at the time. <laughs> so they just throw it on the floor and take off. But that was the visit of Santa Claus for all practical purposes. Um, and that was the way... Uh, It developed after the Reformation. Now, in Germany, those figures had many different names, but they looked a lot alike. And in the mid-1800s, 1847, 1849, and then again in 1859, you see drawings of this person that had been giving gifts, but they now call him the Weinoxman or the Christmas mm-hmm. Man. Yeah. And so the German version of Santa Claus, known as Christmas Man, developed more directly from uh, these uh, post Reformation gift givers. Saint Nicholas was no longer part of the Protestant celebration, but he continued to be part of the catholic celebrations and if you go to let's say belgium these days where you have a combination of catholics and french catholics and dutch citizens and there is no real predominant religion in the netherlands now it's very uh, non-religious state but but it was the dutch reformed church but they still have saint nicholas and Weinoxman and even the American Santa Claus all there in their celebrations. Mm -hmm. Um, But each one has a different role. And St. Nicholas, his role, like Sinterklaas, the post-Reformation version of St. Nicholas, he brought gifts on December 5th or 6th. And the Weinoxman brings gifts on Christmas Eve. So they're different figures. You know, uh, they may look alike, uh, people may confuse them, but they are clearly different figures. And there would be a lot less confusion if Clement Moore hadn't decided to use the name St. Nicholas (laughs) in his poem. The poem or the booklet from which he copied the story, the children's friend called this figure Santa Claus. Uh, not with a Santa space clause, but S A N T E C L A U S. One word. And Moore basically adopted the story, including the reindeer pulling the sleigh, but he called this person St. Nicholas. Now, why did he do that? He clearly knew this was not St. Nicholas that he was depicting. His father was the Episcopal Bishop of New York. He taught at the Episcopal uh, Seminary in uh, Manhattan. He was very religious and and very knowledgeable about religion. St. Nicholas was, in fact, an Episcopal saint, but he would have known that this wasn't the saint that he was depicting in the story. It was simply the name that had been used in his household, for a Christmas gift giver in 1822. And there's a note that he has written to one of his daughters in probably a year or two before he wrote The Night Before Christmas that says, From St. Nicholas. And it's a a note that St. Nicholas supposedly left for his daughter on Christmas Eve explaining that she had not been very good. (laughs) And when you read the note you think because you could get through it. My God, he's going to give his kid nothing. You know, that's not very nice. <laughs> but then at the end, he he basically says, you haven't been very good. You don't deserve anything. But I'm a good person and I'm going to give you something anyway. So <laughs> he, he comes off with a happy ending. But that's how the name St. Nicholas gets, gets thrown in there. But the name Santa Claus as used in the Children's Friend, and as used in, there's a book called False Stories Corrected that was published in 1813 that talks about santy Claw, C-L-A-W, being a, a false story, a legend that kids were told about how santy Claw would come and leave gifts in their stocking once a year, and that kids shouldn't believe this story. So... <laughs> The only conclusion I can reach is that the name Santa Claus in one variation or the other was brought from Germany because if you look at the names of the post reformation gift-givers in Germany there are several that are very close to Santa Claus and so you know you can conclude that kids came over mass migration the kids brought with them their gift-givers Some were named Santa Claus. Some were named uh, Pelsnickel, which became Mm -hmm. Bellsnickel. Some were named Chris Kendall, which became Chris Kringle. And that's how all of these different figures ended up being in the mid-Atlantic states, I'll say, uh, at the beginning of the 19th century. New England didn't have any gift givers because they were still basically anti-Christmas. And in Virginia, South, were predominantly settled by the English. Now, the English had their own Christmas figure. Father Christmas, also called Sir Christmas, and two or three other variations of that, um, actually goes back to the late 1500s, I believe. And there were books and plays that included Father Christmas. The Southern Americans were English. I mean, to this day, the University of Virginia is called the Cavaliers, which were the pro-monarch Englishmen. There were pro, I guess I would say anti-monarch Englishmen that were represented by, for example, the settlers in New England. But the southern part of the U.S. was primarily English who were in favor of the monarch. And so they celebrated Christmas because the monarch did, and the monarch changed obviously from time to time, but Queen Elizabeth the I celebrated Christmas, Henry the Eighth celebrated Christmas, and then Queen Victoria uh so sort of quite notably celebrated uh christmas and uh so among that part of the English people. Christmas was was celebrated for many centuries, mm-hmm. and Father Christmas was the symbol of that. The first depictions of him were in the 1600s, and he's clearly Father Christmas, but he's very stern-looking. He he has what might be um, clergy robes on, and long beard and uh, hat, but, but it's not a lot of fun. It looks like in 1600, they sent him away off into the forest or something. And he didn't have a haircut for two years or shave for two years. (laughs) And in the um, 1800s, he came back with the long shaggy hair and the shaggy beard and a drinking problem. And (laughs) that's how he was depicted in England through most of the 19th century, which would Mm -hmm. be the 1800s.
0: And even the, the ghost of Christmas present is often seen as a, a kind of yes. English Father Christmas who's yes. feasting and probably drinking and
1: all Yes, that, yeah. exactly. The appearance is very similar. And most of the, the, the illustrations actually were on the cover of the London Illustrated News, which was the English equivalent of uh, Harper's Weekly um, or Harper's Monthly in the US. These were newspapers that for the first time included lots of illustrations and the importance of those papers can't be overstated because it was the christmas drawings of santa claus in the u.s and father christmas in in england that helped create a single vision of of what the gift givers looked like saint nicholas although still mentioned in the poem just sort of disappeared and Uh, long about middle of the 19th century, Santa Claus just came slowly to replace St. Nicholas in the telling of this poem and in uh, the public perception as to who the poem was about. It was about Santa Claus. Even though they used the words St. Nicholas and St. Nick, this was Santa Claus. And they would then call him Santa Claus in the newspapers and they would illustrate him as Santa Claus. Now, the guy who gets all of the credit for illustrating Santa Claus is Thomas Nast and mm-hmm. Nast was obviously a great artist and his his illustrations of Santa were significant, but they were not the first You have the children's friend in eighteen twenty one and then you have a period of maybe twenty years with what I call that sort of miniature St. Nick's. These are illustrations that people made uh, of St. Nicholas being very small as in the poem. More like an elf. um, But not really looking like Santa Claus. And none of these Mm -hmm. ever caught on. There were about six or eight of them. And I've got in the book, I put them all together so you can see that the attempts to depict St. Nicholas were not very successful and eventually were abandoned and weren't very popular. You know, the interesting thing, there, there's, I'm going to call it iconic illustration of St. Nicholas that went with a 1848 publication of The Night Before Christmas that shows him in these Dutch clothes jumping into the air for no apparent mm-hmm. reason. That <laughs> booklet was, as far as we know, <laughs> there were only two copies of it. That anybody uh-huh. ever found. And and we know that because in the 1860s, a fellow found one copy and he wrote how he searched everywhere he could find libraries, bookstores, antique shops, and could not find another copy of that um, booklet. Hmm. So he wrote an introduction and had it reprinted with the introduction saying I was offered this I bought it it is as far as I know the only one in existence but you know now you have it right and in a way it's very similar to what happened with the children's friend it just sort of disappeared within a short period after being published and there probably were not very many copies printed though we can never really be sure but That was sort of the end of the um, sort of foolish attempts to illustrate Santa Claus as this little miniature guy.
0: And the one thing I have to ask about that is whether you think that was any connection to the Tompton or the Nyssa or the other elves, or did it just happen to be small? (laughs) Um,
1: I don't know. um, it, It really goes back to Moore's poem, Mm-hmm. where he describes them as a miniature sleigh. And, yeah. and, and Moore was extremely well-educated. Um, he would have probably known that there were elves, but the modern depiction, i call it modern, even though it really is 1870s, 1880s, of the elves and the gnomes in, in Scandinavia didn't arise until 1870s and 1880s. And there were a couple of artists who became very well known for drawing those figures, but they they came, you know, uh, uh, 50 years after the night before Christmas. So it's gotcha. hard to say that was the causation. But there were clearly artists who thought that based upon the night before Christmas, they should draw Santa as about three feet tall. And those did not work very well. But by... Mm-hmm the late 1850s and the early 1860s there were um, artists some very good artists who began to portray santa much more like he really looks so those illustrations were there before thomas nast uh, got involved Mm -hmm. so nast arguably improved on them, but he didn't invent that depiction of Santa Claus. That had been published in Harper's Weekly and Harper's Monthly for a number of years before he took over um, as illustrator for Harper's Weekly. And it wasn't until 1866 that he first illustrated Santa Claus, other than there's a 1863 cover that shows him from the back during the Civil War, but you can't right. really tell what he looks like other you can tell he was um roly poly but you can't really tell how tall he is and so on
0: right just another example of how yeah nast always gets so much credit but it's actually much more complicated even just for the the images
1: exactly yeah no he and 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 when nast next draw Santa, it's 1866, and there's, it's this two-page spread in Harper's uh, Weekly, and I think I may have a copy of this. I've got some original copies of Nast's oh, photos. I will have to check, but in any event, that Santa as depicted in Nast's earliest drawings was, again, like three feet tall. Mm-hmm. Um, but other artists were depicting him as a full-sized person, but I think even more significantly, the weihnachtsmann in Germany and Father Christmas in England, the, the papers where those figures appeared in Germany and in England would have come to the U.S., maybe not very quickly, but he would have mm-hmm. become aware that, this German newspaper has published this depiction of the Christmas man. So he would have, they would have influenced each other really is probably a better way to Mm -hmm. say it. And the miniature Santa just didn't make any sense.
0: That does remind me though. And I'll have to send you this as well. I have seen a few father Christmas images um, on postcards. Again, everything's postcards, but on, on postcards that show him as quite small. I mean it's common for you know father Christmas to be on a on a donkey or on a goat or something like one of those two things, but there are some where he's definitely smaller sized um yeah. I'll have to send you some of those not certainly not the majority, but
1: that's right you can um you can find them, but the majority of illustrations showed a full sized man right and right. and and if you think about it um if you were going to have someone impersonate Santa Claus or vinoxman or father christmas um, for your children they had to be full size right <laughs> because the uh, available male actors were full size
0: yeah. the same problem with a six month old christ child yeah uh,
1: yes exactly <laughs> and 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 in the latter half of the 1800s uh Santa, or in some cases, uh, they, they would call him Kris Kringle, began to appear in department stores. And these were full-sized people. Mm-hmm. So it just didn't work to have these miniature gift givers. But they tried it for a while. And then Nast, by 1881, when he draws his illustration that is called simply the Nast Santa, you're talking a full-sized person. Right. And much older. So he he grew in height, he grew in girth, he grew in age. The older Santa worked much better in the pictures with the kids around him. And it was just, it was a nicer depiction. And that's how Santa ends up getting depicted as older, as compared to some of the uh, earlier pictures um, Mm that had him as this um, short, young, elfin sort of creature yeah. so well
0: unless unless you want to go further with some of that i i'd like to talk again about we've talked about nicholases and faux nicholases but to me one of the fascinating things is how closely the evil helpers actually are to some of the gift giving figures um just because i'm sort of excited by the idea that a little bit of santa actually came from krampus <laughs> even well, if it's just the smallest bit it just seems like a fun idea
1: well to begin with there is Nothing in terms of contemporaneous explanation of who these figures were, right You have drawings that sort of show you what they look like, and there there's a decent number of those and there are occasionally historical explanations there there mm-hmm. is for example, Nick Ruprecht has two or three discussions that were historical about who he is and they never really do figure it out where he came from or what he was supposed to be. But the figures can be divided into two categories and, and, and they all fit into one or the other. The group that I call the evil helpers are not human. Krampus falls into that. SERT uh, from Austria looks a lot like Krampus falls into that. And to contradict myself, because I think he was human, Father Switch in northern part of France um, was a evil helper. And these figures were always seen with Saint Nicholas. You never see Krampus giving gifts on his own behalf. He will be there with Saint Nicholas and Saint Nicholas, in the historical illustrations, almost always has one of the evil helpers with him. They have horns, they have hooves, they have tails, they have foot long red tongues. And you know, these are really scary looking creatures, and they're satanic. Um, and part of the premise, um, some of the older books will say, is that they were depicting the saint holding on to the devil and so those pictures are not inconsistent with catholic uh, uh, teachings because the catholics taught that christ or the saints you know could interact with satan but they were they they won they were always in charge right and so in those um, illustrations you'll see them together But the explanation for why they were there is that the saint, Nicholas, couldn't really be seen beating children or worse. Lord knows what Krampus did because uh, (laughs) it was always uh, one of those scenes where, you know, Krampus would haul the kid off and then, you know, they would fade to black and you'd never know whether the kid really... (laughs) Was thrown into the uh, ocean, or eaten, or whether Krampus let him go home, but um, but yeah,
0: the saint couldn't do that. You <laughs> could, he could give the gifts, but he shouldn't be. He's not the one,
1: right? Exactly. So you hand the saint gave the gifts. The evil helpers were the enforcers for taking care of the bad kids, and that makes perfect sense. That is all within. The Catholic view of the world, where you could still have a saint after the Reformation, and the the nations where the evil helpers were most prominent—southern uh, Germany, Austria, the Czech Republic, which had cert—those um, were all Catholic regions. And so, Saint Nicholas could be the gift giver, and he could bring with him a satanic creature as long as he, you know, had them firmly under control. But in the Protestant regions, once they got rid of St. Nicholas or um, didn't think it was appropriate, there was never any real ban on St. Nicholas. It was more that they didn't think it was appropriate. Once that occurred and they had to come up with substitutes for St. Nicholas to bring gifts to kids at Christmas time. Whether it be December sixth or December twenty fifth, it was it was Christmas season, right. and once you got rid of them, these other um, human figures came in that played both the good role and the bad role. They were double duty gift givers. They always carried a bundle of switches. If you look in the the, the historical illustrations, the um, faux nicholas is as i call him, or the terror man is another word that may actually be more descriptive they were scary looking but they weren't they were still human um but they always carried switches you know which was an indication they were going to be able to whip the bad kids and they always carried a bag which was um arguably at least a vehicle by which they could take the kids and do something with them Mm -hmm. and there's there's lots of pictures of the kids being forced into the bags but the bags could also be you know filled with candy or gifts or something so one never really knew by the appearance of the bag what that meant but the switches no doubt were disciplinarian yeah and um the Santa Claus in the children's friend in 1821 had a bundle of switches and left switches in the stockings for the two boys that he thought were not well behaved. <laughs> so the Protestant gift givers with all of these different names were human, but they were dark and scary, and they could administer discipline and they carried switches.
0: No. And that's a bit more like the old, I say older, but Santa Claus is supposed to keep a list with Naughty and Nice. Yes. Yeah. Cole, of course. So so in that way, that aspect of Santa, who I don't think is around quite so much. I mean, it's more of a joke or something that they'll mention. But
1: Well, he clearly began as the um, double duty gift giver disciplinarian. Mm-hmm. um in the same way that weihnachtsmann in germany did and they were scary looking but they they could be good or they could be bad um and they eventually merged in germany into one one creature that had both attributes and in my view the american santa it was intended to be that same figure it was it was mm-hmm. a double duty a uh, gift giver and disciplinarian the other immigrant uh gift giver you have is is bellsnickel or pelsnickel depending on wh- whether you want the american or the german pronunciation but Belznickel was a double duty disciplinarian and gift giver he would give gifts but he carried with him a whip and there's a drawings put together in about the 1950s in a very well known folklore study of christmas in germany and the author had a composite drawn of what Elsnickel looked like in earlier days mm-hmm. and he's got that same sort of he's human but he's dirty he's he's got patch coat he's got you know long beard and so on so yeah. they were all essentially the same character yeah. and they all had this ability to discipline if they wanted to. And the threat was always there. And, you know, in my view, the threat is still there. I mean, you better watch out. You better not cry. Mm-hmm. You know, and Santa Claus coming to town is, is, is a threat and yeah. you have to be a good kid. That's a threat. Now we are in our modern day, mamsy pamsy parenting style and I mean that as a joke, uh, <laughs> uh, aren't going to whip the kid. Right. But we may not give the kid the gift. That's at least the, the threat. Yeah. You know, even that seldom happens. But
0: Even cold uh, a little nicer because it's useful. <laughs> yeah. You're not just getting beat. At least you can stay warm.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it, I, I swear there's not a parent around who hasn't done uh, some of that during the yeah. Christmas season. You know, Johnny, did you know that Santa's elves could be watching you right Mm -hmm. now? Yeah. So it's not quite like beating them with switches, but it is a disciplinarian role. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the fact that Santa Claus has the dual role is one of the facts that clearly distinguishes St. Nicholas from Santa Claus. Yeah. The fact that they have St. Nicholas Day and Christmas is another, but... They are different figures, and Saint Nicholas uh, doesn't discipline anybody. Black Peter does that, which is a whole nother can of worms. Yeah. Um, You know, I don't write very much about Black Peter other than to say historically he was an evil helper dressed all in black uh, and somehow transitioned to this uh i'm gonna call him a a court jester in blackface and and you know i
0: kind of serving boy or something yeah
1: yeah i suggest that you know it would be better off for everybody if they eliminated that and just had pete and uh got rid of the the vestiges of uh american uh discrimination
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah i've stepped into that Controversy a few times, and it's amazing. I've gotten angry, angry Dutch people <laughs> coming back at me who who
1: yeah, say, "No, he's." I mean, oh, the, yeah. the, the arguments you get are, "Well, no, he goes up and down the chimney. That's, That's why. why
0: he's sooty." Yeah, he's, he's sooty, and and,
1: he's and and the answer is, "Wait a minute, look at the white lips. You don't get those by right going up and down the chimney." Right, and right. there are people in the Netherlands who are who oppose Black Peter and. Think he Mm -hmm. should be eliminated. I mean, it's not that all of the Dutch are in favor of these these symbols, but it is controversial.
0: Right. My favorite trend with him is some of the purple and green versions (laughs) that come around that they've started to have it's just local. It's hardly a massive thing, but just to get away from black altogether, he's just a, a different color.
1: Yeah, which is fine. That's what, you know, I mean, he can be um any color they want. And he should, in theory, be a disciplinarian. He should be right. the person who enforces St. Nicholas's or Sinterklaas's directions. But
0: Right. But in fact, he's sort of an anomaly to that, right? Because his primary role in the legends is is to take the gifts yeah. around, right? He's the helper. He's a servant. Yeah. He's um, a- but he's not very... I, in fact, I'm trying to think if I've ever seen images of him once he's in the recognizably Black Peter costume, doing something threatening to a kid. And I don't know that I have seen that because he's also usually seen as very young himself.
1: Yeah. I don't, I don't recall seeing that sort of illustration. I mean, yeah. the the most clearly um, identifiable and historically accurate Black Peter is from, I think it's 1849. It was a, a, a Dutch artist drew him in a a picture book and Mm -hmm. that shows saint nicholas and it shows him and at that point he is a servant he is not depicted in the sort of obviously racist gear but he's just a servant but he's a Moor, which is why he has dark skin it evolved or he evolved from this role to the more jocular uh, role that you see.
0: But no, that's one thing I'd always assumed about him, that was certainly he came from that, yeah, evil helper side, but I've never found any of the, (laughs) thinking of evolution, haven't found any of the transitional forms. (laughs) Right. But, you know,
1: the, the, the reference to evolution and transition is, in my mind, exactly correct the best way to understand how santa claus developed is to recognize that he developed organically Mm -hmm. um you know over thousands of years and it was evolution he would adopt a piece you know or an attribute from here an attribute from there in most cases, you can see when he adopted that attribute and, and explain why uh, he adopted that attribute. But ultimately, it's an evolutionary process, and he's an organic figure.
0: Yeah. With everything else that's in here, is are there other even just small anecdotes or any other surprises that were things you were really not expecting to find?
1: There are some that are just... Fun. One, one is Berkta. Berkta was a German goddess, um, and prior to the arrival of Christianity in Germanic uh, nations, there was something called the wild hunt. Mm-hmm. And in, people have looked backwards and said the wild hunt went from Christmas to Epiphany. Well, it doesn't make any sense if it was pre-Christian because those holidays did not exist in in the pagan world. But it it is roughly the time period. It's it's let's say two weeks surrounding the winter solstice, which even the pagans could identify quite easily by you stick a, a, a stick in the ground and you see when the shadow starts changing and that's the winter solstice so the wild hunt is during a two-week period around the winter solstice um, involves Odin the chief Germanic god who has an eight-legged horse Berkta, uh, who's the goddess of Homan hearth and, and rides a broomstick and assorted spirits the souls of the dead the drawings always depict some horses and some some hunting dogs and this would occur for two weeks and at the end of it berkta would fly from house to house and she would fly down the chimney and she would check out the housekeeping (laughs) and she would she would see whether the children were well behaved and if they were she would give them a little gift that led coin or a piece of candy or something like that if they were not she would disembowel them she would cut them up the middle she would take out their intestines fill the body cavity with straw and pebbles and sew them back up and leave so Berkta was um I think of all the disciplinarians she's the one that I would have most feared
0: (laughs) yeah that's pretty terrifying
1: um and yet she she was popular or still is popular in, all, in her own right because she is the character that that inspired and really looks just like uh Lubafina in Italy and Babushka in in Germany she's she's uh, the the witch uh stereotype that we have at Halloween really comes from burkta another really sort of interesting factoid I'll call it, is Happy Holidays. People get all tied up about whether you should say Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or Season's Greetings. Well, holidays is a term that comes from the Christian Holy Days. And Holy Days was initially uh, used to define the, the period between Christmas and Epiphany. Those were the holy days. So when you said happy holiday, you're really saying happy Christmas. Yeah. Except you're you're encompassing, you know, all uh, 12 days. Yeah. So it, it, it's pretty hard to characterize that as non-religious because it really is expressly religious. But exactly. um, people get ideas and, and then sometimes it's hard for them to give them up.
0: Well, Tom, this has been wonderful. And I, like I said before, this is the most thorough and careful book of Christmas history that I've read. And I have read far too many. (laughs) So um, I truly appreciate it. And I hope that other people will be interested enough to get a copy of their own and really dig into it. Because I mean, oddly enough, even with you know all the detail we've talked about here you go into even more and talk about you know regional differences and different lines of traditions and folklore and it's just a marvelous collection it's pretty impressive how much you
1: yeah we've only covered maybe 20 percent of it um right the, the 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 different characters in different nations the di- different names the diversity of of gift givers i mean there were women there were children there were animals including the gentle camel of syria you know <laughs> my favorite um there were um goats in 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 uh uh scandinavia that served okay. as gift givers uh there are regional gift givers that are are females there's there's a gift giver in in uh spain uh that is known and there's no other way to say this is the shit log Mm -hmm. and it's a log with a a smiley face painted on one end and a a red piece of cloth um uh, spread over and it has little log legs and um the parents would fill the inside of the log with candy um and and the the children would take sticks, and on uh, Christmas Eve, beat this thing until the parents decided they would check every so often, and finally decided that he was going to um, <laughs> expel, shall I yep. say, the uh, the candies.
0: <laughs> and I've even heard that they sing a little song like "Poop Logs." Yes, poop.
1: exactly. Long I, I, I yep. the whole the whole song is in the book. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't, you know, I I was told that story by a fellow, um, many years ago who was from Spain and he was staying at our house because we had invited a group of, uh, junior Olympics competitors who needed a place to stay, to stay in our house. And at the time I was talking to him about this, this, uh, book i was writing and he says well i said you know tell me what you know about or what you recall about growing up in spain and he proceeded to tell me about the shit log and i just thought he was pulling my leg <laughs> <laughs> but he was not
0: well the book is of course available to buy everywhere McFarland site amazon and there is an, an ebook version too correct yes
1: yes and um at some point, hopefully in the next two to three weeks, I'm going to uh, have a, a website up uh, that uh, people will be able to buy it on.
0: Tom, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate your time. And honestly, I just appreciate all the work you put into this because this is one of my now favorite books of Christmas history.
1: Well, thank you very much. I really um, enjoyed being here. I love to talk about Christmas and writing as well so uh, I really enjoyed it I look forward to doing it again
0: great and merry christmas
1: and merry christmas to you Bye-bye.
0: again the book is called Santa Claus Worldwide History of Saint Nicholas and Other Holiday Gift Bringers you can get it on Amazon or the publisher McFarland's site and there are links up on weirdchristmas.com I'm not going to lie, the paperback price is more than you're probably expecting, but that's normal for academic presses. My wife knows that pretty well by now. The ebook version's well formatted too and cheaper, and it may even be easier to navigate the footnotes that way. I swear to you though, it's worth the price. I do hope you'll take a look and a huge thanks to Tom for giving me so much of his time. Lots more to come this year, and I'm feverishly working through all the contest stories. Again, so many good ones. I'm not a religious man, but I guess I do feel blessed that so many people turned on their creative weirdness for me. It's going to be yet another year where I turn down pieces that I actually really like. So if you entered and are listening, it'll still probably be a week or two until you hear from me. You'll know if you made it on the show really soon, but I'm not going to tell anyone who won until it comes out. just seems more fun that way. The show itself will probably be out a bit closer to Christmas. That one just takes a lot of editing and gathering all these moving parts, but some folk have started asking me, so there you go. If I could do it faster, I would. If you like the show and want to support what I'm doing, head over to Patreon.com and search for Weird Christmas. Speaking of, guys, the Thanksgiving cards are out, but they'll probably show up over the weekend. I've learned that postcard stamp speed isn't quite first class, but hey, postal workers are overworked as it is. You can also buy me a coffee or a three dollar donation at Kofi Coffee. I never know how to pronounce this. K O Fi.com slash Weird Christmas. Sometimes that's more convenient than a monthly thing, although you can set up a recurring monthly donation if you're so inclined. Links to all of this is at WeirdChristmas.com. You can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. It's actually real easy. Just, you know, look at your screen right now. Bet you'll see a button. Say something weird and goofy that has nothing to do with the show. I've gotten some reviews since last time, but they're all so polite and kind and gushing. I mean, I love you guys too, but come on, mess up the system. Non sequiturs are way more fun than praise. But seriously, thank you to Matt, 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 Glenn, and that alien girl who agreed with me that Krampus isn't all that weird. But I hope Al Ridenour made up for it realized I said his name wrong in the show, even though I reminded myself that or, I may have to have him back on to talk about all the person and to say his name correctly. And you know, I was going to try to get Weird Christmas branded ugly sweaters this year, but I can't find a place that makes them that seem, you know, quality, but not too expensive. I got some fun ideas, but if anyone knows a good site or service or something, let me know. WeirdXmas at gmail.com. I would appreciate it. Next time, I'm going to have another new friend on. So many people have started podcasts this year. Stuck at home with COVID? Why not ramble into a microphone? But there are two that really stand out to me. So you're going to hear from Glenn Warren from the Season's Eatings podcast, who does a really cool show about the history of holiday food. He's super smart, really does his homework. Uh, By the way, there's another new show called the Christmas Podcasts Podcast out there now. Yes, that is a podcast about Christmas podcasts. Sean there gives you a weekly rundown and interviews people, and yeah, I know it seems a little bit meta and overkill, but you know, there's so many now I kind of depend on him to keep me up to speed, I just can't listen to all the new stuff. But I was also on his show rambling about myself a few weeks ago, if you want to hear me on the other side of a microphone, then go hit him up. I'll put links to his show and that episode up at weirdchristmas.com. So stay hungry, friends, don't kill any more birds to stuff your gullet. Don't overdo the cranberry sauce, and don't let Santa stuff you in his bulging, sweaty sack.
1: Have you ever wondered why we sing and eat
0: figgy pudding during the holidays? How does the butter letter from 11th century Rome create the perfect holiday dessert? Join me, Glenn Warren, on Seasons Eatings as we explore the history and origins of your favorite Christmas
1: foods. So head on over to SeasonsEatingsPodcast.com to subscribe on your podcast app of choice. You know, my answer is yes, of course he's real. I have like 4,000 copies of him upstairs in my attic. (laughs) I literally had to have another floor built on the house to store (laughs) all of my Santa figurines.
0: That's commitment. If only my postcard collection could become, could need its own wing one day, that would be wonderful. Well,
1: be careful what you ask for, though. You may (laughs) (laughs) may regret it.